Merve Emre, welcome to Free Tankets Pod. Thank you for having me. You have written a book about the Meyer Briggs personality test. Uh, I should just explain to the readers that the book is in Swedish called Vilken typ är du? Med undertiteln Varför du inte kan lita på personlighetstester. And the English title is Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Meyer Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. First, why did you write this book? So when I graduated from college, I spent an ill-fated six months as a management consultant. Now I am a professor of English literature, so you can tell just how good I was at being a management consultant, which is not very good. But anyway, when I was a consultant, one of the first things that we had to do was take a Myers-Briggs type indicator. And one thing maybe to know about me is that I come from a family that immigrated from Turkey to the United States when I was very young. Yeah, because your name is Turkish. It is, yeah. yes. And my parents' conception of personality, mm-hmm. the conception of personality that I grew up with, was that you are the sum total of what you accomplish in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether those accomplishments are personal or professional, they are what in aggregate make you who you are. Mm-hmm. So imagine my surprise when I start this job And I encounter this instrument, this test, that tells you that there is something like an innate personality. Mm. It's not about what you've done in this life, but there's something that is simply natural or essential to who you are. That that makes you a complete Mm. and whole and valuable person. Mm. And so to me, that was immensely seductive because it was the Mm. first time I had ever encountered anything like that. Mm. It sounds a little bit religious. Well, it certainly is. And one of the stories that I tell in the book is how one of the women who designed it, Catherine Briggs, certainly treated it like a spiritual undertaking, Mm. something to get her closer to her sense of who God was and how it was that he organized the world and how he organized or managed people's souls. Mm. So there definitely is that kind of religious genealogy to it. Um, But so I was completely seduced by this idea. And then, of course, the other thing that the test offered me was a language, what I describe in the book as a technology of the self. Mm. in order to articulate who it was that you were, what this essence of you was, mm. and to share or to communicate that essence with other people. And I don't know how much your readers, or, sorry, your listeners will know about the type indicator, but that language of self is pretty schematic. Mm. So the type indicator uh, indicates your personality to you along four different dichotomies. The first is extroversion or introversion. Mm. The second is sensing or intuition. The third is thinking or feeling, and the fourth is judging or perceiving. And so once you have a handle on that vocabulary and you encounter somebody else who does too, Mm. it's very easy for me to tell you I'm an extrovert Mm. and for you to believe you know what that means and what it communicates about who I am. Mm. I see. Because, you know, this test, the Maya Briggs test, is very much used in Sweden by recruiting firms, you know, and uh, sort of team building companies and so on. So, So even in Sweden, this is very, very common. Right. And there are two really interesting ways to read its popularity. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that I offer in the book is that as a technology of the self, this language of type 
gives you access to self-knowledge or it mm. tells you, it convinces you mm. that it gives you access to self-knowledge. Mm. And then what it does is it yokes that idea of self-knowledge to self-governance. Mm. So if you know who you are, then all you have to do is make decisions that bring you into perfect alignment with that essential self. Mm. And this is, I think, a very popular idea among uh, recruiting firms uh, in workplaces mm -hmm. because it allows employers to use the human psyche mm as a means to convince workers mm. that they are doing what it is they are meant to be doing yeah. by essence of their personality. So that's mm. one way to read it. Yeah. And then the other way to read it is in the longer history of personnel management and the ways in which after, say, World War II, many, many, many institutions started using personality tests in order to rationalize their labor force. Mm -hmm. So when Isabel Briggs Myers designs the first prototype of the test in 1944, she writes a little note to the consultant she's working with. And she says, if men came like shoes with the size on the outside of the box, then we could avoid a painful fit. And she's mm. interested in basically giving people numbers on the outside or letters on the outside to help find the right man who's the perfect fit for the right job. Mm -hmm. I see. But, but I mean, to, to realize these things, uh, it's a long way to actually decide to write a book about it. How yes. did that happen? Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I'm an academic. I'm a, I'm a literature scholar. Mm. And one of the things I thought I was going to do after I finished my first book was um, write a book about the relationship between how we think about literary character mm -hmm. and how we think about personality. Okay. And I started researching that book and I discovered the Myers, or I rediscovered the Myers-Briggs mm. type indicator and discovered that it was invented by two women, mm. which was interesting to me because I think often when we see two last names conjoined together, we think it's a man, mm. two men, two mm. scientists, two mm. psychologists who invented this in their laboratory or clinic. So I was excited to discover that it was two women and I was even more excited to discover that both of them were novelists. And one of the places where they were testing out their theories of personality were through characters in novels. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I want to find out more about these women. And the papers of Isabel Briggs Myers are at an archive at the university in Florida that's controlled by the Myers Briggs Foundation. Is the university controlled? Well, by it's, them? it's it's housed at the university, mm -hmm. but it's controlled by the Myers Briggs Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to them to ask for access to the archives. And this resulted in a year-long negotiation with the foundation, uh, which was trying to determine whether or not I was suitable enough mm -hmm. to give access to the archive. And it culminated in a week-long re-education program where they said that they said I had to attend in order to learn how to speak the language of type properly. Mm. And so if that sounds religious or spiritual to you, it also sounds quite cultish. Cultish, yes. that's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> um, and the more resistance the foundation put up and the more hoops they made me jump through, the more it just whetted my appetite. And mm -hmm. I thought, what is it that they're hiding? What don't they want people to know mm. about the history of the indicator, about the history of the industry, about the history of these two women. Mm. And so the desire to write the book was really born out of that immense curiosity mm. Mm. at being denied access to the archive. Yeah, because that that's what's really shocked me. Well, it didn't shock me, actually, because I've, I've been into this a little bit myself and looked it up before. I, I actually wrote a piece in a Swedish magazine like eight years ago uh, where I was saying that Meyer Briggs is the business world's uh, astrology. 
Right. Uh, and it's six, it's 16 personality types, and in astrology it's 12. That's basically right. the only <laughs> difference. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I actually interviewed my, my Briggs consultant at that time, and uh, she said to me that you are an... I did the test, of course, and I think I, it was ENTP, she mm. said. And she said, that's why you are so critical to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but but if, if, we, if we talk a little bit about the, the not scientific foundation for this, uh, because the test has no validity and no reability. What do you call it? Reliability. 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 That's in English. right. Thank That's you. right. So, can it, you explain it, that? Sure. So, the concept of validity is: Does this category, mm-hmm. say extroversion or introversion, um, and the way that it's assessed, actually measure what it claims to be measuring? Mm-hmm. And reliability is: If I administer to the, the indicator to the same person over time, yeah. will the results come out the same? Yeah. And it doesn't, right? No, it, it doesn't. Fifty percent of the time, somebody gets a different answer. Now, this has been, in some ways, incredibly advantageous for Myers-Briggs, for the foundation, for the people who market the test, and that's for two reasons. The first reason is when Isabel Myers-Briggs was faced with these reliability studies that showed that people got different answers, Mm -hmm. one of the things she came back with was, well, the test is actually teaching people about themselves. Mm -hmm. So you discover things about yourself in the process of taking it, which means that if you take it again, you know yourself better. Mm -hmm. And so you might get different results. And that was a really interesting dodge, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. of of that question. The other way in which it's been advantageous is that personality tests in general are often still used to make... Uh, to make decisions about who to hire. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're used to make those decisions as proxies for things like mental health. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, there are versions of personality tests that claim to be asking you completely benign and non-judgmental questions about your personality, but really they're trying to screen for whether you're depressed or anxious or bipolar Mm -hmm. or schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. And the book uh, right now is in the process of being turned into a documentary. Ah, And this is one of the through lines that the documentary producer and director are following, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this sort of explicitly discriminatory angle. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons that personality tests, Myers-Briggs included, have been protected from this is because they claim that they're not scientific. Mm -hmm. So if they're not scientific, they can't produce the kinds of hard claims to truth that say a DNA test might Mm, or mm. a medical test might. Mm. And so that's the argument they make for why they can't actually be discriminatory because they're not giving you information that's uh, foolproof enough Mm. for that discrimination to be meaningful in the first place. But this this reliability thing that if you do the test again on the same person, it Mm. can turn out completely different, right? That's what you mean. Right, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, and Uh, to me... No, sorry. No, no, well, well, my question is, because that, as I understand it, goes completely against the sort of uh, pseudo-theory that is based with the archetypes, the Carl Jungian archetypes. Right, of course. So there are two interesting things to say about that. The first is, yes, the theory is based on some idea of an unchanging innate or essential personality and you should get the same answer every time you take it Mm. um to me as a professor of literature and someone who's really interested in language the question or the important question is not so much is this valid or reliable because i think we know it's not Mm -hmm. the important question is despite its lack of validity and reliability why is it that people cling to it Mm-hmm. And why is it that they defend it with the kind of ardor mm-hmm. you usually see reserved for the matters of the greatest faith? 
And that is not a question about science. That's a question about language mm. and culture and how it is that this vocabulary of type allows people to feel about themselves and how mm. it is that it, al it allows them to communicate their ideas about themselves to others. Mm. Uh, so that to me gets at the essence of why it is that the indicator continues to be popular well after it's been debunked yeah, as yeah. a scientific tool or as a scientific practice. But the, <clears throat> the validity part, how can you explain that part? So the validity part, validity just, to, just as a reminder, is whether or not the categories are actually indicating or measuring what they claim to mm. be measuring. How can you debunk that? Right. So one of the ways that that gets debunked is by uh, comparing people's results on the Myers-Briggs to other tests that claim to be measuring the same thing. So this is certainly not the only indicator or test that tries to measure something like extroversion, mm -hmm. right? The five factor does that as well. So one of the things you can see is how well aligned people's scores or categories or types are across different indicators that claim to be measuring similar things. Mm -hmm. I would also just add to that that one interesting way to put that in a historical perspective is that when Catherine and Isabel designed the indicator in 1944 based off of their readings of Carl Jung's psychological types. They had incredibly different definitions of things like extroversion and introversion or intuition and sensing than the indicator purports to have today. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you and I are both allegedly extroverts, right? Okay, you think what, so? <laughs> well, what words do you associate with extroversion? Oh, um, that you are very social and right. you can interact with people easily. Mm -hmm. Yes, or I'm gregarious, mm. outgoing. Yeah. I think the classic Myers-Briggs question is, would you rather, on a Friday night, would you rather be at home curled up with a book or would you rather be out at a party yeah, yeah, talking yeah, to people? Yeah. Uh, and, and with introversion, I think we'd probably associate words like quiet, yeah. reserved, shy. Yeah. Um, but when Jung wrote psychological types in 1923, his definitions of those terms were radically different. Mm -hmm. So for Jung, the extrovert was someone who was supremely chameleonic, mm -hmm. somebody who could walk into a room, read the room, and instantly adjust the outward manifestation of his personality to suit what he thought people in that room wanted from mm -hmm. him. And the introvert was somebody who had such an abiding sense of their own subjectivity that they didn't give a damn about the external conditions that they faced. Okay. And in psychological types, the example that Jung gives of this is um, on, a, on a cold day like today, the extrovert is the person who will immediately put on their hat and their coat to go outside. And the introvert is the person who will say, I don't care. Let, I, I want to be cold. Let the weather do what it will. I can withstand it. Mm -hmm. That's a very different definition. It's totally different. And I think about this all the time because I have a, I have a three and a half year old mm -hmm. who is incredibly gregarious and sociable, um, but refuses to put his coat on. And I asked him why. And he said, I want to be cold. Mm. He said, I want to be cold. I don't care about the weather. And I thought, well, under the Jungian system, you, in fact, are an introvert when you would otherwise look a lot like an, like an extrovert. Yeah. So my broader point here is not that any one of those definitions is right or wrong, but that, of course, extroversion and introversion are nothing inherent to us as people. They are totally the products of, of language and what they mean Uh, differs based on what the people who wield the indicator, people who wield the idea of personality, want them to mean. 
So in a corporate setting, it's much more useful to identify people as social or antisocial mm. or gregarious or quiet than it is to say, well, you, sir, are more personae based mm. versus you. You have a more abiding sense of subjectivity because what are you supposed to do with that yeah. in a corporate setting? Mm. Whereas if you call someone social and you call someone else shy, then there are ways those words can get really easily mobilized to think about how you interact in a team environment or whether you want one of them to be in a leadership role or not. And so the real argument that the book makes is that it's impossible to separate this language of type from the institutional conditions in which this language of type gets deployed in order to rationalize the way that human beings work, the way that they interact with one another, the way that they love, uh, the way that they profess their faith. Mm. Um, it becomes a language for organizing life. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I remember the consultant I was interviewing <clears throat> many years ago in Sweden. She said that they use it a lot in team building to make people communicate better. Right. And I was immediately thinking that, well, that probably would work with astrology as well if they believed in astrology. Because if you sit down a whole day to talking about how you communicate, of course it's going to be better. I mean, it's a lot of placebo effect in this. Right. And and I will say that when you, if you ask somebody who's a certified Myers-Briggs type indicator administrator, one of the things they will say is that the letters themselves are only a jumping off point for mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. And that really the proper way to assess somebody and the proper way to administer the indicator is to make it a kind of therapeutic back and forth between the person being assessed and the person doing the assessing. Mm -hmm. So that where self-discovery takes place is not really in knowing the letters, but in the conversation that results. Mm. And of course, then the question becomes, why do we need the letters in the first place? Are they a useful framework for helping us understand who it is that we are? Uh, now, because, like I said, because of what I do... Um, my tendency is to think that there are better ways of understanding the self. There are more narratively mm. flexible ways of telling the story of the self that accommodate or allow for all of the uh, disparities and the disjunctions in who we are yeah. and that complicate that idea of the self. So it's always more socially embedded, always more situationally constructed than what any form of typological thinking yeah. would allow <clears throat> us to believe. And the Frankfurt School critic Theodore Adorno mm. has a wonderful critique of typology in which he talks about how the, the kinds of individuals that typological systems construct are not actually individuals at all. They are completely flattened mm -hmm. by the forces of industrial modernity. And once you have something like a typological system or once you're thinking typologically, you don't, you're not really talking about individuals anymore. Okay, I see what you mean. I was also thinking, you said that one of these um, uh, sort of uh, pol polars, um, was it thinking and feeling? No. Thinking and feeling is one of them, yeah. certainly. And yes. I find it strange because I don't think that that's opposing positions. I mean, right. you think and feel together. Of course. Of course you so, do. And that category has a really interesting and very particularly gendered origin. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you read Catherine Briggs's 
earliest writings mm. on Jung's typology, which obviously influenced her daughter. She talks about thinking and feeling very much within a domestic context. The man is the yeah. one who thinks, yeah, and the woman course, yeah. is the one who feels, mm. and she likens them to a canary and a fish. <laughs> okay. And she says, if the canary tries to swim, it drowns. If the fish tries to fly, it dies. Mm. And this is what happens when a woman tries to go into a thinking man's world and a man tries to go into a feeling woman's domain. Not very modern. No, no, not very <laughs> modern. Not very modern. Uh, but at the same time, one of the things she's interested, interested in is figuring out how to validate feeling so that women don't believe that it's any less important than thinking. Mm -hmm. So this is actually her attempt to say, no, they're both they're both incredibly important. They're both good. They just operate in completely different domains. Yeah. And one of the ways her daughter absorbs this is when Isabel designs the first prototype of the indicator, she actually has completely different scoring scales for men and for women on thinking and feeling, mm -hmm. operating under the assumption that women will just be biologically more inclined to feel than men. Mm. And so you need to readjust or recalibrate the scales to to make that um, to make that evident um, and in some ways to normalize the population of women so you have as many thinking women as you have feeling women okay yeah and the the other scale was uh, what was it perceiving and judging judging and perceiving right that's also very weird to me because you need to perceive to be able to judge to have a critical rational attitude so that's an interesting one in part because that's the only category that does not come from Jung's psychological types. Mm -hmm. That category is one that Catherine and Isabel create by themselves. Uh -huh. And for them, it's less about perception and judgment as we think about it, or it starts out that way. But ultimately, what it becomes is really more about one's propensity for organization. Mm -hmm. So a judging person is somebody who likes to organize their life, who likes to have a timetable, a checklist, who always wants to be on time, who wants things executed in a very time-sensitive fashion. Um, and the perceiving person is one who's more of the procrastinator, the one who likes mm -hmm. to wait until the last minute to get things done, the person who doesn't plan. Mm -hmm. So when I was at this re-education program, the example they used, which astonishingly almost everybody in the room reacted to, or the question they used was, if you go to Disney World with your family, do you prefer to plan out which rides you'll ride? before you go or do you plan to just show up with the kids and let them run around and do what they want mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was unbelievable to see in a room of you know 50 people or so everybody had an opinion about this particular question uh -huh. um okay. and why do you think that was the case? <laughs> well i guess a lot more people have been to disney world than okay. i thought but <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. but also because one of the things the indicator is quite good at doing is in presenting ordinary situations that often become extraordinarily high stress. Mm. And from my limited experience, family vacations are definitely one of those situations mm. where people's personalities come out under conditions of, of duress. Mm. And it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that the indicator purports to do is to present you with completely benign, non-threatening situations. Mm -hmm. But in fact, many of the situations we take to be benign or non-threatening do in fact threaten our sense of self, particularly when we come into conflict with our spouse, with our children, mm -hmm. with our friends. And so it's very good at smuggling in that sense of instability and self 
that that um, anticipation of conflict um, and then pretending that it's not actually there. <laughs> I mean, the, <clears throat> who were these two women? Why did they start this project? Well, that's a great question. So they had very different motivations. Catherine Briggs, born in 1875, attends Michigan Agricultural College graduates at the absolute top of her class and marries the man who graduates second. He, his name is Lyman, he goes off to become a physicist at mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins. And even though she's more successful than him and by many accounts much smarter, she stays at home. Mm. She has three children, two of whom die within the first year of their life. Mm -hmm. And the only child she has left is Isabel. And one of the things she wants to figure out when Isabel is young is not just how can I make sure my child stays alive, but if she stays alive, how can I make sure that she self-actualizes? Mm -hmm. How can I make sure that she lives life to its absolute fullest? Mm -hmm. And for Catherine, this question really becomes a question of what type of person is my child? And if I can figure out what type of person she is, how can I design a life for her that allows for that kind of self-actualization? And so Catherine is this immensely overbearing mother. She records everything that Isabel does for the first 14 years of her life in a diary that she calls the Diary of an Obedience Curiosity Mother. She starts a laboratory in her house that she calls the Cosmic Laboratory of Baby Training, <laughs> where she invites wow. other kids from the neighborhood in so she can assess their personalities and then create these life plans and education plans for them. And when Isabel goes off to college, she falls into a total crisis because her daughter has been her life project for the last 15 years. And that's when she discovers Carl Jung's psychological types. Mm -hmm. And she reads it, and she spends five years writing out bits from psychological types on these tiny three by five index cards. And she starts referring to him as her god. Mm -hmm. She says that his type system is her religion. And after a while, she starts sending fairly erotic letters to him that okay. begin with inquiries into type. So she writes to him and she says, I don't understand what intuition is. Can you tell me what intuition is? And he writes back to her and he says, you know, rather magnificently, intuition is what sees around corners and through walls and into the deepest recesses of the human heart. <laughs> so of course she falls in love with him because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, who among us wouldn't, right? <laughs> and they start corresponding and she starts seeing people as patients in her home in Maryland and refers to herself as one of his disciples. And in 1937, when he comes to the United States on his mini lecture tour, she goes to New York to meet him. And they meet in his hotel room at the Ambassador Hotel in New York. And, and what happens I won't there? give that away. No, people actually have to read the book if they want that, <laughs> that juicy tidbit. Okay, so, okay. so, you know, her, her fixation on type is, on the one hand, the fixation of the parent mm -hmm. who wants to figure out how to create a very particular life and a very particular world for their child. And on the other hand, a kind of erotic yeah. fixation, not only on this man, but I think on the idea of personality and mm -hmm. on the idea of talking about personality as being a space for a kind of erotic exchange. Mm -hmm. So that's her motivation. Her daughter is quite different. So Isabel goes off to college. She marries this man named Chief, who her mother dislikes, mm -hmm. of course. 
Um, and her mother actually sends a, a really strange letter to her to her daughter's husband instructing him on how he will have sex with her daughter. Oh, my God. I know. Okay. She's really overbearing. Yeah. Oh um, and uh, Isabel grows up and she has two children of her own. And for a while, she has a career as a best-selling mystery novelist. Mm -hmm. She writes detective fiction. But her mother becomes intensely jealous of Isabel's success and she tells her, look, in this life you can only be one of two things. You can either be a mother or you can be a writer. You cannot do both well. And so Isabel decides to be a mother and she raises her children. And when her children go off to school, she too has a crisis sort of in the midst of World War II. Mm. And she looks around and she sees that increasingly I, there are more people applying for jobs than there are jobs to give. And the problem that this raises is how do you find the right person for the job? And one of her son's classmates at school has a father, a man named William Hay, who's one of the first management consultants, one of the first personnel consultants, sorry, in the United States. Mm. And she thinks, what if I designed, using my mother's language of type that she inherited from Young, I actually designed a questionnaire that could figure out how to fit the man to the job that was right for him. And not only would this save employers a lot of time, and it would prevent them from hiring and then firing people who weren't right, but it could actually create a world in which everybody was doing the job that was best suited to them. And so everybody was also happy at work. And so her motivations are much more aligned with a kind of late spirit of capitalism mm. idea, which is that we should love what we do, we should be happy at work. Work should be a place of fulfillment emotionally and psychologically for mm. us. And that what we need are tools to make sure that that happens. Mm, I see. Yeah, yeah, I see. That's very interesting. And, and uh, I, I can't help that I get some kind of... Uh, I associate a little bit with the Scientology church because, you know, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction, a quite lousy science fiction writer. <laughs> and uh, and they also had this, uh, this machine measuring. Right. I don't know what it's called, but anyway, do you see similarities? Well, it doesn't surprise me that people who want to remake the world in their own image start with the novel. <laughs> no, that's true, yeah. The, the novel is, is a place where you can make imaginary worlds and you can populate them with people who fit your own, if not necessarily typological, then somewhat systematic sense of yeah. who should be in that world. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that if you're a failed novelist, uh, then one of the places you might go is away from creating character and toward creating the fiction that is personality. Yeah. Because ultimately, personality is itself, I think, a fictional construction. And it's one that different people use in different kinds of ways and different people write different fictions about their personalities. Mm. And I think it's no accident that what Catherine and Isabel produce ultimately is a system of language mm. because that's what they want to do within the form of the novel, but it's what they can't do. Yeah. And one of the, if one of the critiques of personality typing is a kind of anti-capitalist critique Right, that personality typing uh, makes individuals subject, it makes the individual psyche subject to the rationalization of labor. Mm. Then another critique is the is the humanist critique, mm. which is that actually, in flattening the individual in such a way, what personality typing generates are very bad stories about who people are. Mm. 
And that's something like the novel obviously lets us tell better stories and create more rounded characters. Mm. But when you started to investigate this, you you, you write in the book that uh, you get a culty feeling of this, right? right? Can you explain a little bit what happened? Right. Well, you know, on the one hand, um, I already spoke briefly about the re-education program yeah, that yeah. I was asked to go to. Is it called re-education? They did call it that, yes. They they referred to That's it as weird. a re-education program, which is very, very strange. Yeah. And one of the things that happened after this program was I wrote to the Myers-Briggs Foundation and I said, look, I went to this program. We've been in communication for about nine months now. I want to come to the archive. And they basically said, we've, you know, we saw things at the program that made us suspicious. So, no, you cannot come. And, you know, I found that incredibly interesting. Uh, but on top of that, every time I would go to visit an archive, so for instance, when I went to the educational testing service, uh, the manufacturers and distributors of the SAT, the ETS had for a while thought they wanted to publish the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And they spent many, many years trying to validate it so that they could offer it along with the SAT for mm. to universities mm. as something to use to screen applicants. And when I went there, um, the archivist in charge had actually removed the file containing Isabel's letters to ETS. And later I learned that um, he had asked one of his colleagues to kind of surveil me as I was there. So things like that, you know, there's a very rare tape that shows Isabel in conversation with someone, and there are two libraries in the U.S. that have it, and when I contacted both of them, they said they would send it, and then the tapes mysteriously disappeared. Really? So things, yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm playing this up a little bit for dramatic effect. It really yeah. could have been, you know, they were miscatalogued, they simply never had them in the first place, it was mm. some kind of error. Mm. But it was just interesting that every time I tried to get more information, there was always something, there's always a hurdle that exceeded the kinds of hurdles that I've encountered in the past when I've done any kind of historical or archival yeah. research. And how did this organization react when your book was published? Well, you know, I think they thought that what I was going to write was a kind of takedown. Mm. And that's not what the book is. The mm -hmm. book is in many ways an appreciation of these two women whose lives people know very, very little about. So, like I said before, the book is being made into a documentary. And it looks like the foundation is increasingly willing to give the documentary producers access uh -huh. to the archive. That's good. Hmm? Um, I'm one of the executive producers on the documentary. And so I'm excited to go see what's in there. Uh, to see what else could have been in the book. Yeah. And so then the documentary will be a kind of interesting way to extend and to rethink the book based on what that archive has to offer. Um, although, of course, the, the open question is how much of it will they let us see and what will they let yeah. us see? Yeah. Mm. How, how has the book been uh, received by um, sort of other people? Has it had any consequences on how companies use these tests? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know sort of individual oh. responses to it. And one of the interesting consequences for me is that people who I don't think have read the book very carefully or maybe have read about it but haven't read the book keep contacting me to ask 
uh, or to say that they have a personality typing system and could I comment on whether it's better. And so there have been a lot of offers for these, you know, to be a consultant on different kinds of personality typing systems. And I just think that misses the point so spectacularly. Yeah. Um, I am, you know, excited. One of the things that, again, is happening in the documentary is that the producers are... Uh, like I said before, investigating the ways in which personality tests become proxies for forms of mental health discrimination. And I hope that that will expose the illegal and unethical hiring practices of companies that Mm. would discriminate against somebody for being depressed or anxious Mm. or bipolar or what have you. And, you know, my hope is that I mean, it's, it's only a kind of incremental thing to get rid of personality testing. It certainly doesn't solve any of the bigger problems we have. Um, but it would be an interesting first step. So what type are you, according to the Maybridge? Oh, I'm an ENTJ. I'm the type of all major dictators. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's close to my, I was ENTP. Yes. Is, okay. that, is that correct? So is that I'm, the English letter? Yeah, Maybe yeah. It's the, no, no, yeah. you're right. Okay. You're right. Okay. You're right. Mm-hmm. You got it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So, so, what, so what, what am I then? I... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, so you're an extroverted, intuitive thinking and perceiving. Really? So you lack the organization to be a dictator. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) If you only had that, then, then then you'd be set. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, it was funny. I was, you know, talking about the book at a festival and I said, you know, I'm an ENTJ, which is the type of both you know, Dick Cheney and Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden the microphone just blew out and the lights went off. And I thought, oh my God, Donald Trump knows that I'm here saying his name, you know. (laughs) That's wonderful. And now you are in Sweden to present uh, this book to the Swedish market. It's it's released just uh, now and uh, it's going to be wonderful to see how how people react to it. You're doing... uh, some interviews, I think, tomorrow, or some interview for yes. for the morning paper. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. Yes, I'm uh, excited for that. And uh, I did a wonderful event at a bookstore. Yeah. Today, today, which was really lovely. Yeah, that's yes. nice. No, it's been wonderful to be here. Okay, so thank you very much for uh, coming to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me.